0: Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. I told her last night I was sitting there just, she drew me in and I forgot I was supposed to come up and preach. So uh, I love to hear her stories about how she's walked with Jesus. Jasmine is one of our ID Canby Bible College students who... Has lived with us for almost two years now, and so we've been able to watch her growth and watch how God moves in in her life, and it's exceptional. It's so much fun to see that happen. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good to see you. I'm gonna now I can see you. It is so good to see you, and I'm honest. I'm truthful now. <laughs> I love our prayer walls, and I want you to keep this in mind. And really, if you stop by at any of the services that we have, anything going on here, just remember that those prayer walls. Uh, are inviting you to put names, uh, to put names up there. We want to do that. We have water baptism coming. I look forward to water baptism. As you figure this out, I look forward to anything that helps us see people find Jesus and, and become followers of Christ. Water baptism is one of those significant moments in all of our lives when we say publicly, Lord, we're following you, and I want the whole world to know that I'm following you. Right now, I think we have almost 40 people signed up for water baptism for our Easter weekend services. So again, if you haven't been baptized in water and God is uh, moving in your heart in that way and leading you that direction, then go ahead and sign up. I I really want to encourage you to do that. You can see the theme that we've put up above the prayer walls. It's the theme for our Easter weekend, I Have to Believe. And someone said, that sounds a little different. I have to believe. Well, let me tell you where that's coming from. It's really coming from a place of testimony. And I, I know in my life that there were seasons and especially circumstances prior to receiving Christ that he hemmed me in. He, he, he was so dogged. He was so faithful to bring me to this place uh, uh, that, that I needed to. I had to believe because all the other choices were really taken away. I would be foolish not to believe. And you can see that in the life of the disciples. When they come to that place and see Jesus crucified, they come to that place where they see an empty tomb. The gospel tells us only one person went into that tomb and believed, and that's the gospel writer John. Uh, The other struggled with it. Uh, They had to find their way to believing in Jesus, and and sure enough, God is faithful to do that, and and I'm sure you have stories as well, stories that you can tell about how you came to this place, God hemmed you in, and I'm so thankful that he hemmed me in, that he caught me, that he lassoed me, and I came to that place, and I said, Lord, I have to believe, I have to believe. And I'm going to pray that for you. I'm going to pray that for those whose names are on the wall as well. What I'd like you to do this morning, if you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 19. I'm going to continue our study in the Gospel of John chapter 19. I'm going to get there in just a moment. uh, But before I do, I want to give you a little context. I want to give you a little background. I'm going to take the Gospel of John chapter 19. I'm going to divide it into two parts. Both parts are entitled The Agony of Victory. The first, we're going to go through verses 1 through 16, and then the second, we're going to go through the rest of John chapter 19. And you'll notice that as we go into Palm Sunday weekend, in past years, we've studied Palm Sunday. It's the obvious thing to study but if we're going through the gospel of John we were at Palm Sunday about 10 weeks ago because Palm Sunday happens in John chapter 12. So what we're going to do is we're going to move faithfully through this and we're going to look closely at something that I think all of us need to look closely at this time of year and that's the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I want to take a little more time. I want it to sink in. I want us to be thoughtful, I want us to be prayerful about what we're reading and what we're hearing and what we're experiencing. You know, we're almost to Easter, it's a time where we celebrate and we declare that wonderful phrase, He has risen. I love that moment, I love with anticipation, I wait to come to that place on Easter morning and every service stand up in front of you and say, He's risen! And to hear you say, He has risen indeed. But there was a lot that happened before that. We need to think about the agony, the suffering that took place prior to that. When I think about this, I recognize that Christmas is a distant memory almost, isn't it? Do you remember Christmas? It's gone by and we keep moving on. It's the place where Matthew, one of the gospel writers, says this. He says, Mary will give birth to a son and they will give him a name and his name will be called Jesus. Now this is what I want you to listen to. It says this, because he will save his people from their sins. I want you to hear that again because this is his mission. This is the reason he came. Because he will save his people from their sins. You know, for this to be a mission of Jesus Christ who was sent and affirmed by the heavenly father, sin must be a terrible, horrible thing. Think about it. God sent his only son, a son who had existed with him in eternity, who had his home in heaven, who enjoyed all the things that royalty and all the things that royalty enjoy. And he comes here and he takes on the form of flesh, flesh just like ours, flesh that feels like ours, that looks like ours, that is just like ours. For him to do that, I have to think, I have to keep in mind that sin is a horrible thing. We live in a culture that has played down and even dismissed the effects of sin. We may think of sin as breaking the rules about lying or stealing or killing or committing adultery. There are some that are heavily burdened by the sins they've committed. And there are others who think that sin doesn't even exist. I've heard people say this to me, that sin is something that the church makes up. It's something that the church tells people just to keep them weak and dependent. It's a religious opiate. But when you look to see what sin does, it destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. It triggers wars. And it causes unspeakable pain. Sin is the cause and the motivation behind such horrible things as Rape and torture and greed and pride and other horrible experiences in the world that we live in. We're reminded how sin affects us when we read the news reports, when we watch children suffer, or we study the ravages of mental illness. I'm not trying to place a gloomy cloud in your happy day today. What I'm trying to do and what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to do is to allow this just to sink in for a moment because then we can understand and appreciate the extent that Jesus went to, how he suffered, how he agonized over us because we were full of sin. He came after you. He came after me. He will save his people from their sin, What an amazing gift this would be. What an amazing thing if this could happen, but taking sin away wouldn't be easy because sin is a powerful thing and sin is a hard thing to kill. Eliminating sin would require a supernatural war with a high cost to it. There is an incredible price tag to taking care of sin. And because sin is so entrenched, It would take infinite suffering and agony to fight and ultimately gain the victory over sin. And how this battle would play out was predicted by the prophet Isaiah almost 900 years before the story we're going to read in a moment was written. Isaiah, out of all the prophets, gave us the most descriptive account of what took place in Jesus' body over that time, those hours of torment and torture and suffering. Isaiah describes this suffering, this tremendous agony in vivid fashion. This agony would be so severe that it would appear subhuman. I tell people this, that when you read the prophet Isaiah, especially Isaiah chapter 53, there should be a warning label like there is when you watch a TV program that is so vivid and descript, and it probably would be today R-rated, and it would be R-rated because of the violence attached to it. Isaiah the prophet tells us what that looks like. Not very many people venture to go there, and I understand why, because emotionally it's, it's, it's difficult, it's almost impossible to, to handle. Intellectually, how do you get your head around something like this? And so most people who write about this torture, this agony, just say it in one or two words because they can't describe it. In fact, when we read John's description in John chapter 19, verse 1, he says this, He says, and Pilate had Jesus flogged. What's interesting about that is what's not said there. The man who describes everything, the man who gives detail to every moment so that you capture his majesty and his glory comes to this place, this moment, and all he can say is, Pilate had Jesus flogged. The man who could describe no longer can give words to what he saw, to what he heard, to what he felt, to what he smelt. He could not attach words to it. All he says is Jesus was flogged. And I think the byline there would be, and I can't tell you anymore. How do you describe that? How do you even speak of that again? There's some that were shocked at the way that he appeared when they brought him out with Pilate. Some saw him go in as someone they recognized, but when he came out and he stood there before the people, they wondered, was this the same man that they took in just a few hours before? He was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. And here's what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, he was despised. He was rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, I I don't know how to fully explain all, all of this. I really don't know how all of this works. Somehow our human sin was placed on Jesus and he suffered so much so that we could be saved. It's difficult to understand But it's what God did for us. And you see, what we're looking at and what we're thinking about right now is the anniversary of the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's only a few days ahead of us. It all came true the day that Jesus suffered and the day that he died. And here's what I want you to listen to. I want you to listen to how the gospel writer John puts it, how he describes the fulfillment of this prophecy And then Pilate took Jesus, and he had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe. And they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in his face. And once more, Pilate, he came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, He said, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And as soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate answered, You take him, you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders were insistent We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered. You would have no power over me. If it were not given to you from above. Therefore... The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. The chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. You see, there were the Jewish leaders that were jealous of Jesus. They were tremendously envious of Jesus. And and so they inspired to kill him. And that conspiracy came public In John chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and it says there that many believed, but in the same breath, it says, and there were those there that saw what happened, and from that day forward, they plotted to kill Jesus. You see, these religious leaders were smart people because they used this Roman governor to do their dirty work. They put political pressure on Pilate, to order Jesus' crucifixion. And in this chapter, in chapter 19, it tells us that Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. So in hopes to appease these leaders, he had Jesus flogged. When I read these stories about the torture and the torment that Jesus went through, there's, there's no way that I can imagine that because I didn't carry the sins of the world on my shoulders, he carried my sins on his shoulders. But I often try to think what the other players may have been going through. And on this occasion, when I read this gospel, I I wonder what one of those Roman guards or centurions were thinking. What were they going through? Remember this. He will save his people from their sins. Imagine yourself as one of the Roman soldiers And a Jewish prisoner is turned over to you, so what you do is what you do to everyone turned over to you is you strip them naked publicly. You stare at this naked 33-year-old preacher from Nazareth, and two of your colleagues take him by the arms and hands, and they shackle him to a post put into the ground, and they bend him over so his back is exposed and rounded to be an easy target and you pick up your favorite whip, one that you've used before. It has a handle, long leather strips with pieces of metal embedded about every few inches. It smells because it's stained with blood from the last time you beat a man. You reach back so that you can strike hard and lash the whip on the victim's back as he jumps and he cries out in pain. You take a quick look to see how your first strike brought welts and cuts across his back. And then you change your angle so that the whip doesn't lash around to his abdomen, but rips across his back again like razors. And this time you've really done some damage. And when you do that damage, your soldiers, your fellow soldiers, your comrade in arms, cheer you on because of a good strike. Your adrenaline is flowing. You know what it's like because you've been there before. You've felt this before. So you hit him again and again and again. And his back is covered with blood and you can no longer see where you struck before. So you move down to the legs and you strike there until they're so bloody. You can no longer see where you've hit him before. And your colleagues, they turn him over to whip him on the front side. He will save his people from their sins. Beatings like this one often killed people. They would bleed to death. They would dehydrate. They would go into shock. There were even some victims that lost their sanity. They broke. And then you listen to this and you hear it and you ask the question, maybe not out loud, do you think I could do something like that? Do you think I could pick up a whip and do that? The Bible says, no man knows how evil and wicked his heart is. I want to say no. No, I would never. I would never do that. I would never do that. That's what I want to say. But I know how much sin cost, And I know how much Jesus went through to get there and then what happens here is the crowds turn against Jesus. And I think this, the flashpoint, had to be when the Roman soldiers played a sadistic game with Jesus. It's a game that took place in the Praetorium. I've been there. I've seen it. It's etched out in the stone. And in fact, where they play that game is just a few feet from where they whipped him. It was all in the same place. They play this awful Horrible game. They dress him like a king, but with a cast off robe, probably from one of the centurions, a crown of thorns, a reed scepter, and then a mocking tribute. Hail, King of the Jews! What you're seeing here is not only Jesus being whipped for your sins, but what you're seeing here is the full blown sin of anti Semitism. You see, what Jesus represented to those Roman soldiers was the whole Jewish nation. And those Roman soldiers hated the Jews. They hated them with a passion. They hated being in Palestine. They hated ruling over them. They hated the Jews. And now they have a chance to get back at the Jews through Jesus. And so they whip him. And they whip him again. And they whip him for every time a Jew smack talked them. They whip him again for every time a Jew got in their face and caused a revolt. And they whip him again. Mocking voices. Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking voices today. There was a rally of 20,000 people at our national capital of atheists yesterday. Their whole theme was to mock Christianity, quote, to mock Christianity. It's been going on a long time. In 1894, Gandhi wrote his autobiography, and he said this, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, His death on the cross was certainly a good example, but that there was anything else to his suffering, mysterious or miraculous, this my heart can never accept. In 1900, a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche dismissed Christ's suffering, calling the concept of God on a cross preposterous. In recent times, the Oxford scholar Alfred Hare. He wrote a paper evaluating world religions and he called Christianity the worst of all because it rests on the idea of a suffering savior whose substitutionary atonement was intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Mocking voices. But here it is. The foolish things always confound the wise of this world. The agony found that it confounded the wise of this world. People are still mocking today. They're still saying in similar words, hail king of the Jews. This kind of treatment would have been horrible for anyone. But this is Jesus. And John points out a lot of ironies in his gospel. If you've noticed that, he shows us different things about how we treat him and how there are ironies to all the stories that he teaches us. Because here's what I see. Here's Jesus, whose rightful throne is encircled by something that resembles emeralds in the story of Revelation. And it's the same author who's writing to us in John 19 who writes this story of the majesty and the glory of Christ. It's whose attendants are 24 elders seated at the throne and they recognize his greatness and his power and his sovereignty. And so they take off their own crowns and they cast him at his feet and they say, we're not worthy to wear these crowns. And then the thousands and thousands of angels who are singing, holy, 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 you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Pilate's plan to severely flog Jesus in order not to crucify him backfires. He thought that when the crowd saw the pathetic prisoner that they would just be satisfied. That they're... Their thirst for blood would be quenched. But they wouldn't have anything to do with that. They wanted him crucified. You see, there were two crowds there that day. I don't know if you've noticed that. There were two crowds that turned on him. All the Jews shouting against Jesus on the outside of the palace. And all the Roman soldiers torturing Jesus inside of the palace. What took place that day was the world turned against him. Why? Why was there such agony before victory? The answer? Because he will save his people from their sins. The payment of our sins cost Jesus an agonizing death. And John, in another place in his epistle, 1 John 4.10, he says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what the Bible says in so many different ways. The Bible tells us this and speaks of it in different ways in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It says in different ways that he died to give us life. He died to bring us to God. He died, the just for the unjust, He died for our sins. He died to save us. He died to give us eternal life. Friends, this is the gospel. (laughs) This is the good news. Jesus went through unspeakable agony to pay for the sins of mankind. And what do we get for that? Well, we get a lot of things. But one of those is that you're forgiven of your sins. Think about that, the weight that that burdens you down, the weight that keeps you from thinking straight. Some of you have maybe never received Christ as your savior and you don't know what it is to have that weight taken away. You've lived with it so long. You carry around with you this weight of your sin and the wrong that you've done. The good news is this, is that you can be forgiven and your sins are washed clean. They're taken away. You are forgiven. I don't even know how to describe all that except to say what the psalmist said. Your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And I've been waiting for a preacher someday to tell me how far that is. But no one tells me. Because they can't. You see, one of the reasons we've gone through this today, one of the reasons we've been in some ways forced to face this in our own hearts because this isn't about religion it's not about christianity it's about what jesus has done for you and until you face that one-on-one personally you can never understand that you can never understand how much your sin took him to calvary and some of us even think this some of us even think well I I know that he can forgive me of my sin and there are a lot of sins that he covers but there's these one or two sins that I keep in the back of my mind. I keep them in the recesses of my heart. I've never told anyone and I'm never going to tell anyone and when it comes to forgiveness, those are the sins that I don't think Jesus could ever touch. The reason we tell the story like this, the reason we go into the vivid detail of this story is that you know that even those sins that you keep in the recesses of your heart are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's limitless. There are no boundaries. There's nothing you can hold back. There's no sin in your life that you can say, well, here, this sin, he can't cover this. This is too horrible. It's too awful. And Jesus says, by what he's done for us at the cross... And how Isaiah describes his death, he says, Give it to me. You are forgiven. That weight can be lifted today. You just ask Jesus. I know what people say. Some people say, Well, it's so narrow to think that Jesus is the only way to God. What a joke. Jesus is the only way. Let me ask this, then who else paid for our sins? Because they're there, they're real. How else are you going to get there? By yourself? Been there, done that, it doesn't work. You can't get out of that to save your neck. Jesus says, I am the way. There is no other way. Neither is there any other way to salvation. I love what it says here. There is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. Jesus has forgiven you. Receive the gift of forgiveness in your own life. And remember his mission this passion season. He will save his people from all of their sins. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward if they would and even our prayer team if they would make themselves available around the the building to to have prayer after our time together. But I, I want to do this. I want to pray a prayer today with all of us in this room, praying it together, a prayer that accepts that gift, a prayer that recognizes that my sin cannot be taken care of by myself, but it must be given to Christ. And then he gives me the gift of forgiveness. That's how our sin is taken care of. There is that agony that Jesus went through before we see the victory of an empty tomb. And he did that because he loved you. Pray this prayer with me, would you? Dear Jesus, I see the extent today of how you suffered and how you agonized To redeem me. You did all that because you love me. Would you forgive my sins today? Today I confess with my mouth. And I believe in my heart. That you are my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your salvation. Make my heart your home. In Jesus' name. Still with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer today to receive Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to lift your hands. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I want you to lift your hands as a way of confessing that what you've just prayed is a prayer of salvation. And if you've done that today, would you lift your hand and say, I did that. I prayed that prayer to receive Christ in my heart today. Good, I see your hand. Just If you would just keep your hand up, we're gonna get you something. We want you to have something to begin your your day with and to, right back here, folks, right, right, right there. There you go, thank you. Good, I don't wanna miss anybody. Once you get that little pamphlet, just go ahead and put your hands down. And I wanna thank you for your courage and your faith today. What you've done is you've taken that step to receive Christ and there is this amazing exchange that has happened, and I want you to be aware of it. When you've prayed that prayer with the understanding of asking Jesus to forgive you, he has forgiven you. There's something else that happens. It's described in a lot of different ways in the gospel, but here's one way it's described. The old is gone, the new has come. (laughs) And today, that's exactly what Jesus has done for you. Thank you for making that decision. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to tell someone you came with or go to a prayer team and pray with them and tell them because this is what the word says. The word says that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Make that confession. And receiving Christ today, you also have that opportunity and I'm just gonna encourage you. Water baptism is coming up in a few weeks that you can be baptized in water as well and say, well, I'm a follower of Christ. What a wonderful thing to say. What a wonderful way to live. Father, we want to thank you for your salvation in this place. We want to thank you for how you change our hearts and the way that you change our hearts. And we give you today honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen.